James Fegan. Yes, James. James Fegan's got some branding on his laptop. Making sure everybody knows that he's joined the Athletic. Can never get too much exposure. On Twitter at JR Fegan. I can anticipate this question. It's probably way too early, but excellent. Too soon. <laughs> too soon. Asking the questions to get the answers you need. If you knew that Abreu was available to be the runner there, would you have gone to him instead of Hendrick? Yeah, if I'd known that, I didn't know that. Let's check the rule. I'm guessing you know the rules better. Now I know. James Fegan with Lawrence Holmes on 670 The Score. score, 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 score. The Chicago White Sox are in third place after the weekend. They are 27-31. and 31. Six games back of the first place Minnesota Twins in the American League Central. Rangers beat the White Sox 8-6 to six in 12 innings yesterday. I'm Mark Grody filling in for Lawrence Holmes here on Chicago Sports Radio 670. The score as we do try to sort it all out. All things White Sox. With James Fegan of The Athletic. He joins us on the Circa Resort and Casino Hotline. Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Where do we begin, James Fegan? Where are we with the White Sox? Uh, they've not been good. <laughs> um, re- please, please rescue the White Sox, Lance Lynn, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 where to begin is a uh, daily challenge. For me so if you can help at all uh, i'd appreciate it i will i will i will guide you through this segment james for sure because it is difficult to know where to begin and you know what lance lynn is not a bad spot to begin because he is supposed to he is scheduled to come off the disabled list from his right knee injury and he is scheduled to start at detroit Tonight, So that begins to make better one of the things that has been not as good lately, the starting pitching. What do you think about Lynn coming back, and what should we expect to see from him in terms of length, volume, all that kind of stuff coming off the injury? Um, It's hard to know. I think it's in a similar boat of um, how much did you get wrapped up about Johnny Cueto's uh, Charlotte numbers because obviously they weren't good and if anything they kind of like his first outing was outstanding but everything else was very much in the bucket of well he's getting his work in he's throwing his pitches he's getting his pitch count up type of situation especially the last one where I don't think he got out of the fourth but you know assuming that this is a guy with a very long track record and that his stuff is not you know suddenly diminished you're kind of hoping he'll do what he does and um you know, kind of succeed right off the bat because he, he he knows what he needs to be successful. But at the same time, it does seem like you need to have reasonable expectations of not really expecting a lot more than like, I think five innings would probably be something you'd be very happy with on 90 pitches. would be kind of a reasonable uptake based on what he's done in his rehab. Um, obviously, this is a team that could really use, you know, if only just from a pitching standpoint of, you know, who's available in innings and arms more than even, you know, building the vibe. Uh, just a dominant outing from a guy who carried this team when they weren't full strength in the first half last season. They certainly need that now. That seems like a lot to ask from a guy coming off the injured list. But, you know, if you talk to the rotation, if you pull the rotation, like this is their guy, this is their leader. Um, this is the Tim Anderson of the pitching staff, so to speak, in terms of how vocal he is or how much he kind of brings energy to them. So it, it's a lot to ask to just, you know, save the team. <laughs> and, you know, that, that can't really be the job of any player in baseball, but, 
man, uh, they could really use someone to put them on a good foot. And obviously the, the worst offense in baseball and the Tigers uh, is probably a good place to start for that. Yeah, that'll help. And yeah, right right now, I mean, the Sox heavies in their starting staff, you know, Cease and Giolito and obviously Kopech with the, the injury, which we'll talk about, they're kind of in a, well, they are, they're in a, they're in a slump. They're in a collective slump right now, as far as their starting pitching has been, been concerned. And Lucas Giolito in specifically went the the five innings on Saturday and Scott Pitsednik in the post game show was quick to point out and pointed out more than once it was a topic of discussion the the velocity towards the end of the game being at 92 as opposed to 95 at the beginning of the game and honestly I don't even know if that is something that has been commonplace with him or is that something to be alarmed about in Giolito's case yeah I mean for him He's been kind of in that uh, 92, 94 range all season. Um, you know, I think when he talks about, like, not um, – he, he's always been a guy that gets stronger as the game goes on. I think when he means by that, more so than even Velo, is about just being in sync, that he's this big, you know, one of the tallest starting pitchers in, in the majors, mm-hmm. like this big body who kind of gets in sync over the course of, of the night that he can be rough and he can kind of be finding himself his first one or two innings or so. You certainly saw that a lot in 2019, but if he doesn't get knocked around, if he kind of gets himself right, he's somebody who's pitching as well in the sixth or seventh uh, as he is at any point in the night. He's not somebody who tires in the, maybe the specific way, especially if he's able to pace himself and kind of empty the tank in that final inning, um, knowing what he's facing. That definitely is a hallmark of his best start um, really the last three years, and he hasn't been on that. He's been somebody who – more than, say, like the velo's going down, it's just like the command is wavering away. That's okay. really, when somebody gets tired, they make command mistakes more, and you just see their velo fall off a cliff. That's more somebody who's you know, more dealing with some more fatigue or even hurt. So I, I think that's more what he means. I don't think he's quite seen maybe the velo that he expected based on you know, what he was doing to get himself stronger over the offseason. But more than that, it's just not executing sharply the way he does down the stretch normally. And he didn't want to use an excuse uh, the other night when I asked about it, but I think it's reasonable to say like this is a guy who came off the COVID list and said it was an even worse uh, bout than he dealt with the first time. And that, that seems the correlation between that and him not looking as sharp as he had earlier in the season, I, I think is really hard to ignore. And you would assume the farther he gets out from it, the, the more you're going to see it. He certainly seemed fine uh, for four innings, uh, even with some rough patches. It seemed like one of his typical starts uh, in terms of a shaky first inning and finding himself until that fifth inning the other day. It's, uh, I, I just feel like it's mostly time for him, but it's, I, I think you're right on in that. I don't think any of the starting pitchers, Cease or even Kopech, if the injuries minor, have been um, bad or a way where you'd worry about the long term, but they just haven't been in the position where they can carry a team right. over its weak points the way that they had to be the first you know exactly. month, six weeks of the season. Yes, yes, spot on. And, and it, it's almost predictable that this was going to happen, of course. At, at some point in time, these guys are not going to be able to carry the team, and then they're going to need the offense to to carry the team this year. There's some really weird stats, though, for the White Sox that I'm sure you are aware of. I happen to hear Steve Stone throwing this one out there at the, the end of the game. Heck, he may have got it from you. Who knows? But he the what he said, James Fegan, was nine times this year the Sox scored seven or more runs and are three and six in those games. Um, and moreover, Sox are 13 and 17 at home, and they have been out homered at home this year. 
Do you have a reaction to either of those nuggets? Um, well, the first time was was the number on times they scored more than seven nine seven or more runs nine seven or more uh, nine times they've scored seven or more runs and are three and six in those games. The main thing is that's not enough time to score seven or more runs for this offense. So, like, <laughs> they've had bad luck on that. Okay, uh, I would say, but that we're talking about like the bad luck is you know three or four of those games, and the other um, representative of those games is being way behind and kind of coming back against the lower lever options leverage options uh, of the bullpen. Like the the nine runs they scored in that kind of you know otherwise disaster piece of a game against the Dodgers. A lot of that was the Dodgers, like not throwing, you know, Craig Kimbrell or Daniel Hudson into the start of those games, or their prime of the relievers, and kind of coming back on the lower leverage of Penn. I, I think that's, uh, you know, even some of their good offensive performances are kind of the product of a team, you know, not using their, you know, Kendall Graveman, Liam Hendricks types against them, and then kind of working their way back on that. I think it's just not hitting, uh, but being out homered at home, um, you know, having some so few of these big uh, offensive outputs. I think it's a, this, the product of the general lack of offense uh, consistency mm-hmm. uh, that's been the problem all year. Yeah, it it makes sense. I guess it shouldn't be shocking, but it's still one of those jarring things when, when you hear those things. They definitely pop off the page a little bit. I haven't asked you really about Michael Kopech yet, and I don't know that there's been an update today, but should we believe Michael Kopech when when he was speaking to you guys yesterday that essentially what I heard was a guy who is not too worried and might make a start in a week still? That's definitely a hope. Uh, you know, what Michael said, like we first talked to Tony Arusa and you kind of got the double barrel of he heard something pop and he's starting Sunday. And you're like, oh, I think we need to delve a bit more into that. Yeah. Uh, Michael said it was more of a key felt of a twinge or a pinch feeling. Okay. Uh, twinge and like pinch are better pop. words. Yes, than pop. Yeah. <laughs> and that the R- MRI came back uh, fine and that he has kind of some fluid buildup. You know, I, I think maybe Sunday could wind up proving ambitious for him. It's definitely a day-to-day thing about how much he gets better since he was still sore after the game. Um, but it, it sounds like there wasn't kind of this major injury, that structural injury that requires, you know, a, you know, rehab process or, you know, considering surgery that's going to knock him out where you can immediately say like, Oh, he's going to be out two weeks or six weeks or anything like that. So it's more of a day-to-day kind of twist or something that he did to his knee that mm. uh, they need to find out. But I think the goal with him and obviously the goal with Yasmani Grandal is hoping it recovers on a day-to-day basis and they avoid an IL stint. Now that certainly makes things kind of dicey for now. Like, you know, with Grandal, they're carrying him and they have to carry another catcher, uh, hoping he's back in less than a week time. And with Kopech not going in the IL, that means you don't have the roster move to make to figure out who's going to start Wednesday now that you've moved everybody up. Um, Davis Martin was option, so he can only be brought back if someone else goes on the injured list for Wednesday, even though he'd be on regular rest. Vince Velasquez would conceivably be an option since he threw a sim game on Saturday but then you'd also have to clear somebody off the roster to activate him. So they don't really have a, a clear idea of what moves they're going to make. Um, the way the sock season has been going, somebody else getting hurt to make that roster room isn't, it wouldn't be the most shocking thing to happen, but uh, otherwise they're looking at trying to figure out how to get a, you know, a bullpen day out of a bullpen that's been kind of worked to death the last few days. What was Luis Robert thinking yesterday, James, when he uh, tagged at second base and became ultimately the final out at third base, trying to go from second to third on the sack fly, game is over, sudden death to the White Sox? What was the explanation? Did he give one? He did not give one. Um, 
mo- most of the explanation that we got is that he was thinking I could get that base and was not thinking about my run doesn't matter. Uh, this is a totally unnecessary risk given game situation. And he's got a, you know, it was a mistake is what Tony LaRusso said flat out and that it'll be addressed and you'll be told like, hey, we love you being aggressive on the base pass. Use your speed, but you've got to look up at the scoreboard and know that your run does not matter uh, in that situation and you getting third bases of no consequence. They had another play in that game where Larry Garcia took second when they were down multiple runs uh, in the extra innings, and uh-huh. that was probably something that wasn't worth it, but at least it's in that context of when he did it with zero outs and ball being caught, he was at least running to get out of a double play. There was just literally no benefit to at least Robert getting on third base in a two-run game in the 12th inning. Yeah. Yeah, it was just stunning and felt empty at the end of the game. It's just it was a horrible way to, to end the game. And this might be kind of a, a separate thing, but what I, I realize always when I think about and talk about Luis Robert is that of all the White Sox players, he's he's the guy that I feel like I don't really know. I don't really know him, like what, what he is like. Like I got a, a good idea, like even some of the other guys that prefer not to speak English um, or can't speak English, like Jose Abreu. I feel like I know him and like what he's all about and his leadership and all of that. And Aloy Jimenez, he's, he's there for the good times and, you know, all of his fun antics and things like that. What, what do you have, do you know Luis Robert, what he's like? And, and it, I guess it also surprises me that he wouldn't speak to you guys after the game yesterday. Is it a regular thing? Uh, I mean, from what I, my interaction with him is somebody who is shy and, you know, is still pretty early on the road of feeling like, you know, having confidence of speaking a second language and thus interacting with, you know, and unfortunately most reporters don't have, um, much ability to communicate with them in Spanish from anecdotes of, of, you know, talking to teammates or coaches is that this guy is pretty engaging and pretty funny. Uh, and also someone whose competitive fire is one they don't really question. Who's probably going to take his mistake pretty hard. You see, I think he's the personality that you see most of Luis Robert is when he fouls off a pitch, you think he can, he thinks he can hammer and kind of makes this disgusted face of himself in the batter's box. Like, <laughs> yeah. if you see that, that's Luis Robert. That's oh, okay, like okay. That everyone kind of describes of uh, someone who they think really. I, I think the quote that I he I got from him in in April about how he sees the season is that like I know that I have the potential to be one of the best players in the league, and I really think I like it behooves upon me to try to. He didn't use the Spanish version of behooves, but you you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that. He, he thinks he's got like this big obligation to reach it. So I think he's internally motivated. And if anything, that may be a little bit of him trying to take that third base of just constantly trying to do more. But that's just a you know an unaware situation. And yeah, as far as like you know him uh, you know declining the request yesterday, I, I think it's just um, you know there's a bit of shyness about how everything's going to play in a different language and not knowing and not knowing how to explain this mistake uh, type of situation more than, you know, he's someone who ducks accountability or something like that. Gotcha. Aloy Jimenez. We, we mentioned him within all of that. Where, what's the update on him? Well, the last update when we talked to Rick Hahn was that, you know, this was trying to explain that this is a, a stretch of, you know, soreness of scar tissue release that happens with guys uh, in this process that happened with Lynn and happened with Grandal. And that the, you know, the White Sox explanation of this is that it just happened later with the Menes when he was already on a rehab stint, that he had not had any kind of flare up uh, while they were testing him. And they're thinking like, well, maybe he's just not going to go through this. And then he goes on the rehab stint, he plays in games and he does feel it while running a couple times. And now they're thinking, well, 
to shut him down and restart it, they, that he wasn't going to hit. He was already at 11 days when it happened, and they didn't think he was going to reach uh, ready to be ready for the majors by the 20-day limit of a rehab stint, so that they restarted the clock uh, by shutting him down any stint, and that it could begin as soon as tomorrow. Now, when it begins this week, if it begins tomorrow, you know, then you're thinking he has another week left to rehab games and then he's back. Whereas if he, you know, the, the farther it gets towards this weekend that he actually gets activated and he's over the, uh, the soreness of the scar tissue release, that then it becomes more like, you know, it could be a week and a half or it could be two weeks. The longer he goes out of action, the more time he needs to get speed up because they're really trying to avoid, you know, him struggling the way he did when he came back last season where he just clearly wasn't on time for the fastball the way that we know he can be, you know, based on what he did in 2020. Um, so this is probably something he's going to go through a little bit. I think Yasmani Grandal, although he's, you know, it's hard to tell that he didn't feel really normal running, you know, for stretches of last season when he came back, when he's active, because that's just something you go through when you go through the surgery and you have the scar tissue buildup. It's going to happen from time to time, but they're hoping this is the last major flare up that knocks him out for a week on end. Uh, but obviously Eloy Menes has been through a lot. You know, the fan base has been waiting for him to be healthy finally and back to himself for a long time at this point. So it's, it's, it's easy to be very, uh, have to be full of doubts right now. As for the Tony LaRusa flare-up and now being separated from the intentional walk by a few days here, is, is this officially something that has now passed and management or whomever might have been critical of Tony, it is over, it is passed, or does it leave some sort of demerit for Tony LaRusa and a side-eye like, okay, we're watching you now, Tony, based on that. And I, I'm sure Tony's very pleased to be going to Detroit as well. I mean, I think this particular thing just becomes like in a library of like, well, that was, you, you know, that he's capable of making these unusual decisions. You know, that he's very dedicated to handedness. Like, uh, you know, that he, he feels like he needs his lefty specialist in those situations a lot. Even when in the case of Venezuela, he hasn't really had, uh, you know, a lot of success in the recent or the fact that he has reversed splits uh, so far in his young career that suggests like those situations are, are not as conducive as you might think just based on his hand in this and arsenal. Um, I, I think it, you know, maybe the specific rage of that situation goes away. I wouldn't put everything, I wouldn't put the fans booing Tony or chanting for his job or any issues just purely in the context of that decision. But that's something you know he can do or you know he's going to have stuff that doesn't match with statistical arguments at, at, from time to time. This is kind of the um, you know, package we all knew we were inheriting based off his track record even. The thing was that this White Sox team was supposed to be good enough, was supposed to just bash the baseball and kind of overwhelm teams on talent, that this wasn't you know the sort of thing that's deciding games all the time. But the White Sox haven't been good enough. They haven't been. They've been playing nothing but close games where a manager's decision being unconventional, weird, or just not advisable uh, could swing the result. And, you know, that's been happening a lot this season. I think this would, um, you know, this, the way that they've been, you know, giving up outs and runs on the margins all the time and, and you know, racing their talent differential on the field and, and playing all these close games would expose the warts of a lot of managers. And, man, it's really putting Tony in, under the microscope. And that's, a, that's not a defense to Tony, but it's just these kind of things are going to keep bubbling up if they keep giving him no margin for error because he's going to make errors. Yep, no doubt about that. We we have seen them and we have discussed them for sure. And James, I believe that my um, 
version of this guided tour with you is over. I don't know if there's anything that I have I have left out. We didn't know where to start. I think we did pretty well. Was there anything else that you wanted to add to to your White Sox hit today here on the Lawrence Holmes Show? Um, man, uh, I never had the opportunity to, to drive the ship myself. What a dream. Uh, <laughs> this is it, man. This is the canvas you've been looking for, buddy. I think that, you know, it's an interesting point, and obviously his defense has struggled, but I think they've gotten to this point where they kind of need to figure out how Jake Berger is in the lineup every day, and I think Tony Roos has realized that for what it's worth. I don't necessarily know how it's going to work when you're already trying to fit in Andrew Vaughn and uh, debating whether he plays the outfield a ton and trying to get Yohan Moncada back because you need a left-handed bat who gets on base, but, you know, Jake Berger is just hitting missiles all day. Yep, It's, it's, a, it's another guy who's, you're not exactly clear what the position is, but you need the bat uh, to figure out in the lineup. So they got enough of that, but they need him. Glad you brought up Jake Berger. That was good on you. I think we have perfected this last 25 minutes. James Feagan, thank you so much for being on the score as always. Thanks for having me. Yep, that is James Feagan from The Athletic on the Lawrence Holmes Show, like he is every week here on Chicago Sports Radio 670. The score is we – man, hey, Jake Berger made a couple of ugly errors, like errors that could have been avoided, like not getting in front of the baseball error, stick the glove out, looking for that easy bounce. Hey, we've all – hey, at some level of all of us playing baseball, and I did play – the highest level of baseball I ever played was high school baseball. You know, you know what I'm talking about. If you played the left side of the infield in your life, there are, sometimes it's very easy just to kind of try to scoop that ball up on the side. But if you're Jake Berger, you can't do that yet. You haven't earned any gold gloves. You don't get. You got to get in front of the baseball, just like we were taught to as kids, get in front of the baseball. And he didn't get in front of the baseball, so that was the problem with with Jake Berger for sure. One thing too, when I was watching the White Sox game yesterday and all the ups and downs and the weird drama, the, I thought the most dramatic part of the entire game was something that turned out to be a fake. And that was Dylan Cease warming up during the game with Johnny Cueto in. This is the Kopech gets injured. Now we're just playing defense for the rest of this game. The White Sox were playing defense all day with the, cause they, they were at a tired bullpen. The last, like the last thing they were prepared for yesterday was for their starter to make it, not make it out of the first inning or not make it beyond 13 pitches yesterday. So it, it all felt so dramatic. And then Dylan Cease gets up and I think Benetti suggested maybe he's getting ready or is it Len Casper maybe getting ready for his next start? And Stone said, well, I certainly hope that is the case because if it was not the case, then it would mean that he was actually coming in out of the bullpen. And it, as it turned out, it was, it was that, that at least they said they were just get there was just a little tune up for his next start, which will become Tuesday now in Detroit. So that's what they said. But could you imagine if it had gotten to the point where Dylan Cease had to come in to, to the game? I mean, what are we here? Um, 56, something like that games into the season, whatever. And we're, the Sox are throwing one of their prize starters, bringing him in out of the bullpen. Like I thought that that was headed for the most dramatic part of the game. It never happened. Um, and they never got to the point where it felt like they would have needed to use him, but it was all defused after the game. And um, apparently that he was just getting a tune-up for his next start. But, man, there, there were there were so many twists and turns yesterday, and then there were twists and turns that could have occurred. Like, it could have been worse than what it was yesterday for the Chicago White Sox. When we come back on the Lawrence Holmes Show, I will answer a question that I see at the top of the text message board, actually from a few minutes ago now, about um, a 
which concert would you prefer to go to question, and I will answer that question next. And there is a terrific, terrific Bulls anniversary that we will just smother ourselves in next on Chicago Sports Radio 670 The Score. This is Sports Radio 670 The Score, Chicago's sports station. Yeah, the text line is open at 312-644-6767. I'm Mark Grody, filling in for Lawrence Holmes on the score. Lawrence back tomorrow, Ray? Lawrence will be back tomorrow from noon to 2. But I've been, you know, keeping an eye on the text messages, and they've all been good. Haven't had time to read any, but one in particular caught my mind, and I love questions like this. So if you want to ask me more questions like this on the text line, you can and you should. 312-644-6767. The question, before I get to a Bulls anniversary, here it is from the 563. Hey, Mark, live outside concert. Oh, excuse me. Live outside concert back in the day with this heat and humidity. Motley Crue... Or Guns N' Roses, who are you picking? Scott from Davenport. It's a great question. And those are two bands that, yeah, are worthy of fighting each other. But the answer, 100% for me, is Guns N' Roses, in case you didn't figure it out with the music that Ray Diaz is playing right now. Of course it's Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses does not get enough credit for in part extinguishing bands like Motley Crue and Poison and Rats and all the early 80s metal, which there is a place for. I'm not mad at them anymore. I'm really not. But Guns N' Roses you know, should get more credit for that because they were still in the late 80s, and, when, and that's a different sound, like Guns N' Roses and all that. Like they did, they were a little bit glamorous, when they did the Welcome to the Jungle video, they were still in makeup and kind of in this like metamorphosis stage of still doing the glam rock thing or Guns N' Roses. But they started to sort of take it off, take the makeup off, get the hair cut, become Axl Rose. You know what I mean? And then they just, at the, at the root of it, they just rock. And it's a different sound than all the glam rock, even though they were kind of trying to look the part for a while. And... It's just, it's they rock. You know, they're one of those bands in history. Now, it was obviously Nirvana and Smells Like Teen Spirit that really knocked their blocks off the rest of those bands from the early 80s. That was like, that was the punch. Like, they were dizzied by Guns N' Roses. And then Kurt Cobain finished this, uh, them off with one MTV video, basically. So that's, that's the way I look at it anyway. And it's a no contest for me. And, of course, there's a texture that says, easy answer, neither band. Okay, you don't want to play. You didn't have to text that. Jesus. You know? If you don't want to play our game, that's fine. How about we do this? How about we do this then? There was, there is a Bulls anniversary that we need to celebrate today. Take a listen. 
that timeout, Michael Jordan kept saying over and over, give it to me, give it to me. So tied at 86, four-second differential between the 24-second clock and the game clock. It is Michael Jordan time. Scotty Pippen looking, looking for Michael Jordan. Checks the clock, five on the 24. Here's Jordan. Did not have the shot. Sick. Yeah, so 25 years ago today, game six of the NBA Finals, you had Steve Kerr. Game six, 1997, hitting that 17-foot jumper to essentially win the game for the Bulls en route to title number five. And I did go back and watch the play today. It was, as you might have heard, Pippen to Jordan, who had a shot, probably. So did Pippen, for that matter. But they work it to Kerr, and the magic does happen in the timeout because there's Steve Kerr saying confidently, like this wasn't some sheepish thing. It was, oh, I'll be ready. I'll be ready, Michael Jordan. That was what it felt like. It was like almost felt like a soap opera. I'll be there. And he was there. And he was open and he hit the shot. And guess what? I was there. I was there. Me, Mark Grody. I was there. Seriously, as a just as a super fan. I at the time was working in radio in central Illinois, not even doing sports radio. So I was just a fan, man. I would pay anything to go, and I did. My guy Fez and I, we each spent $150 cash for standing room only. Like, and we're not just standing room only at the United Center in this game. We're talking like standing room way back like behind the people standing basically like you just had to find your little openings i remember this vividly just find little openings where you could see the game like and through the people but just being there and feeling that it was just marvelous and uh, steve kerr hits that shot and we stayed fez and i we just stayed as long as we possibly could we watched them doing the whoever it was broadcasting that the post game show i don't even remember we were probably harassing Craig Sager or something like that. That's usually the way it went down. But, yeah, like I always say, the Bulls for people of a certain age, like it was a lifestyle. It was, and I was lucky, like, most of that stuff hit me in college. So, like, summers back home in the suburbs, just get together at some suburban sports bar, hang out, watch Bulls games, watch playoff games, games of consequence. Like, what do we do? Like, it was all centered around the Bulls. Where are we watching the Bulls? Where are we going out after the Bulls game? Are we going to watch the Bulls game? Where are we going to watch the Bulls? It was. It was like Bears. Like, the way people get together to watch Bears games now, like, that sort of bonding was the way it was during the championship runs, like, where we all bonded over, we all got together over it. It was like the centerpiece, and it was just deluxe, and that's why I always find it very important to bring back these anniversaries on the score. So that was great. I do have in front of me, if I have a, a couple moments here, Ray, 
Um, I do have the the. I love like doing what I what I call on the overnight show the Grobber box score, where I just read random box scores. But it's always fun to look at, remember the names that were playing against the Bulls, like Carl Malone here and Byron Russell. Oh, we all remember him. Um, John Stockton and Jeff Hornacek and Greg Ostertag. We all love big Greg Ostertag. Uh, Shandon Anderson, Chris Morris, Howard Isley, Antoine Carr, uh, Greg Foster, Stephen Howard, Adam Keefe. Those were all guys on that that Utah team in '97. Um, the Bulls roster. Oh, you know the names: Jordan Pippen, Rodman, Ron Harper, Luke Longley, Kerr, Kukoc. Uh, oh, here's a great one: Bison Dele who used to be, before he became Bison Dele, was, I forget, I forget, Randy Brown, Judd Bushler, Jason Caffey, and Robert Parrish, all on that Bulls roster as well. So who was, wait, who was Bison Dele? He became Bison Dele. Who was he before, like Chris Martin or Brian something? Brian Williams. Brian, I knew it was a very common name. <laughs> I went Chris Martin, Brian, it was like Steve Smith or something like that. So, Okay. That is that is fantastic. I preferred him as Bison Daly. Not gonna lie, that one that one sticks for me. That one stays right there. Uh, we have to take a break. This was fun. I'm glad we got to celebrate it 25 years ago today, Bulls fans. It's Mark Rody filling in for Lawrence Holmes on Chicago Sports Radio 670. The Score. This is Sports Radio 670. The Score, Chicago's sports station. Going on, Mark Grody with you. In for Lawrence Holmes on Chicago Sports Radio 670, The Score. We all know what Tony LaRussa did with his intentional walk and in a one-two count with a man on second base and subsequent three-run homer. We know all that. We released some anger over it. But I did think it was really interesting. Did you notice the 10th inning yesterday? The White Sox 10th inning, what was going on there? Obviously, it's a tie game at this point. Andrew Vaughn is your ghost runner at second base. And Chris Woodward, who is, by the way, Chris Woodward is the manager of the Texas Rangers, the team against whom the White Sox were playing. And Chris Woodward, coming off of intentional walk gate in Tony La Russa, Chris Woodward, the young manager for the Rangers, put on an intentional walk clinic. It was an expose on how it's supposed to be done and the results you are supposed to get from it. Did that get past you guys yesterday? Didn't get past me. Tenth inning, Luis Robert with that with Vaughn on second base. Chris Woodward intentionally walks Luis Robert, walked him to get to Jose Abreu. Hmm. Is Jose going to be mad? Not mad enough. Grounded into a double play. Well, how about that? That's how you use the intentional walk. But it's not over. It's not over because Chris Woodward then intentionally walked Jake Berger. Walked him to get to Josh Harrison. Yeah, you would too. So, and then Josh Harrison struck out swinging. Struck out swinging. That's how you use the intentional walk. That was a clinic. I had goosebumps watching that. That was something. 
somebody get that tape to Tony. Here's how it works. This is the ABCs of the intentional walk. That is like the rudimentary book that everybody should buy. If it's going to work, here's why you would do it, and here's the results, the best-case scenario results. That's it. That goes in. That goes in the baseball kit yesterday. That's what the real takeaway from yesterday is. That, if anybody got it twisted on how the intentional walk is supposed to be used because of Tony LaRusso's misuse of it, there it was right there. That's how you use the intentional walk. That's an incredible moment in the game yesterday. Go back. If they replay the game, and, or whatever parts of, of the replay they, they decide to play, I mean, because they like to leave parts out. So whatever you can possibly salvage of the replay before they tear it to shreds, go watch that. Watch the clinic that was put on in the 10th inning. I don't know if they're going to show it. I don't know. There might be too much negativity towards the White Sox. I don't know. Not really sure, NBC Sports Chicago. I don't know. But that was definitely something that I, I found interesting. I might have even tweeted about it. I think I did. It was so in the moment. I know I thought about tweeting it. Did I? Somebody tell me no. At Mark Grody Sports is, is the place where you can find that. All right, on to a little bit uh, more serious of a topic, and that is Lucas Giolito. I don't know if serious is the right word, but Lucas Giolito, as, as I talked about James Feagan, relatively speaking, he has struggled recently. Um, just the five innings on Saturday just did not look sharp. He was on the score with Cody. Was this yesterday? This was yesterday. So he's on the score, rare live interview with Cody Decker on hit and run. And here's what Giolito sounded like talking about his performances and the team. Something seems to be changing a little bit when you get to a certain pitch count as of late. It's not a it's not a normal thing for you. What are you feeling? I'm like not exactly in the best place right now. Uh, I've kind of out of sync mechanically over the last like three or four starts, to be honest. So, you know, there's some work to be done here. Adjustments to be made really haven't been pitching well. Like I'm not I'm not proud of what I've been doing the last uh, couple weeks here. So got to pick it up. When you're doing this, what do you get with Ethan? Is it more mechanical? Is it more physical rather than any type of mental conditioning? Or is it getting with your catchers and getting on the same page with them as well? It's kind of all of the above. With Ethan, he has a good eye for the mechanical stuff. I'm definitely not like getting behind my fastball the way I should. So it makes it a little bit harder to command and it's not like zipping out as well as it should be. So we'll probably have some drills and things for that. And then kind of on like the pitching side, getting with Ethan, getting with the catchers, figuring out like, okay, am I getting into any certain patterns? I've definitely been using the slider a lot more. So, you know, do we kind of stay on that? Do we, you know, start to change up sequencing, locations, you know, all of it. It's obvious. The team's going through it, going through a bit of a skid right now. You're one of those leaders. You're one of those vocal clubhouse leaders. You're one of those leaders out in the public, and I always commend you for it. And, you know, even talking about where you are as a player at the moment, you don't feel like you're living up to your own expectations. This team, you know, it's an all-star team. It's an unbelievably good team, but they're going through a little bit of a problem. How do you guys stay with each other, ignore a lot of the distractions of, say, people like me that are saying the negative negative things that can obviously leak into a clubhouse? 
How do you guys weather that storm, move forward, and get to the next game day after day? Honestly, it's just kind of putting the blinders on and separating. For me, like at the end of the day, we're we're going through we're going through a tough time. But you know, baseball is not everything. I think a huge thing is being able to kind of, all right, had a rough day, go home, call my wife, you know, kind of get away from it, reset, come back the next day. I think there's a lot of that that is very necessary because if you just think about it all the time and and stress over struggles whether it be individual or team struggles you're just going to like work yourself into the ground and not necessarily in a good way overanalyzing overthinking panicking those kind of things that you need to avoid when you're not playing your best so it's just being able to separate and then you know when we're then when we come to the field it's like a fresh day every day and, and the goal is to win that day and so that's all we can really control. I know that, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not going through the best stretch right now. A couple other guys on the team not going through the best stretch right now. But there's a lot of season left, and we just got to take it one day at a time here. Kind of put the blinders on and ignore the rest. A little bit of blah, blah, blah at the end of that from Lucas Giolito. But what I did take away from that and from speaking with James Fegan today about the starting pitchers like Dylan Cease and Lucas Giolito, I'm not worried about them. Like, I, It doesn't sound like there's anything physical, the, nothing like that. It just sounds like they just have been in a little bit of a slump and there's a few things that they could do to adjust. And I 100% believe that barring injury, and you have to say that with the White Sox, unfortunately, barring injury, I am not worried about Dylan Cease and Lucas Giolito. And I feel like that's an accomplishment to be able to say that, that there is something on the White Sox that I am not worried about, and I am not worried about those two starting pitchers. Oh, my God. Parkins is such a Parkins. He is telling me to go to break so I don't take away minutes from his show, which is next. The Parkins and Spiegel show is next on Chicago Sports Radio 670 The Score.